Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to and the Oscar goes to Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Welcome. Hello, hello. It is time for the 40th Academy Awards. Wow. And the Best Picture winner in the heat of the night. Been doing this for four decades. Well, only one year, really. But 40 years worth of movie history. It's crazy. I know. We're finally getting into another good era. Yeah. It's nice to kind of be coming out of it again. (laughs) Every few years of film history, there's just like a weird slump. It ebbs and flows. Yeah. But we're getting into, I mean, the end of the 60s right into the beginning of the 70s is just a prime time for funzo. (laughs) Great movies. Changing landscape of films and also, I mean, because it ebbs and flows with the culture too. Culture in the end of the 60s is going through something huge as well. Yeah. But first, we bring you the Penny News. A pop date. So this week, we wanted to tell you about a particular habit of pennies. (laughs) Which we don't think we've talked about very much here. But if we have, you just get double the fun. (laughs) So Penny, as we've talked about before at some point, uh, is a very slow walker. She's a slow poke. She goes into a granny mode where she just is kind of hobbling down. She wants to smell all the flowers. She kind of walks with a little sway as she slowly meanders about. But the other reason why she gets to be going so slow is that she stops to do a little nibble. She goes cow mode. Cow mode. (laughs) Cow mode, Penny. We always call it out when it happens because she likes to eat some grass and clovers and things like that. Just going grazing. Yeah, she just grazes. And we asked the vet about it one time and they said, oh, that's perfectly fine. She probably just likes the moisture. So they said it was okay for us to let her do it. Well, and some dogs just like go crazy and eat grass when they don't feel well. Right. But that is not what she's doing. No, no. She's like munching. Yeah. She's like having a tasty snack on her walk. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Penny's black and white. So she just looks like a little cow grazing lawn. Yeah. So. Shout out to Peter who coined the term uh, (laughs) because one time I sent him a video of her doing her cow thing and he said ah good cow (laughs) maybe we'll post a video on our instagram (laughs) of penny being full cow yeah i have many pictures and videos of her in cow mode she's a silly one yeah well when we've had people walk her we had to be like it's okay if she grazes it's fine (laughs) don't worry about it (laughs) so that's the news this week about penny yeah short and sweet yeah good job penny Shall we get to the 40th ceremony? Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, get right into it. Tell us what's going on here. Quite quite a lot <laughs> is going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both in terms of the ceremony and the world. Yes. Uh, so today we are discussing the 40th Academy Awards. 
Yeah. They were held on April 10th, 1968 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, as they have been for the past many, many times. They were originally scheduled to be held on April 8th, two days earlier, but they were postponed for two days because of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Uh, They had to push it back because of that. Um, They had uh, some scheduling conflicts with uh, several of the people who were supposed to be involved in the ceremony, um, specifically some of the black stars that were involved who were in mourning. um, And also many of the people involved in the ceremony were politically active and publicly involved in just a lot of the stuff that was going on Mm -hmm. surrounding the civil rights movement and Dr. King's work at the time. So uh, there were a lot of just things that caused some backups with that. So they decided that in order to serve everybody um, and also to allow coverage on ABC and other networks Mm. that were having to change their programming, that it was better to just postpone. Interesting. Yeah. That's the mood here, just to set the tone for you. Um, Bob Hope hosted once again, produced by Arthur Freed once again, directed by Richard Dunlap once again. Mm -hmm. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. This year, Elmer Bernstein conducted, who was a new conductor to the Academy. Um, He had previously been nominated for 11 Oscars, but never won. Yeah. (laughs) My gosh. So there were many, many jokes made by Bob Hope about that. Of course. As I'm sure you can imagine. So just to kind of talk a little bit more about this postponement that had happened, just to give you an idea, prior to this postponement, um, there were specifically four stars who were scheduled to take part in the ceremony, who were all black actors and and people, uh, Sidney Poitier, Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Armstrong, and Diane Carroll, who, because of the situation, they all announced that they were withdrawing from their responsibilities um, because they were in mourning for Dr. King. So just to kind of give you an idea of what could have happened, uh, they decided, they announced publicly that Jack Lemon would replace Sidney Poitier and Shirley Jones would replace Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, but of course, once they decided to delay the whole event, they kicked them out and got the original people back on board. Mm. They were like presenting and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And they just weren't going to be adequate replacements. Right. Um, specifically because of the awards that they were being given out. And of course, Sammy Davis Jr. was performing, and so was Louis Armstrong, uh, mm-hmm. for different songs that were nominated for Best Song, including uh, Louis Armstrong singing The Bare Necessities from oh, The Jungle Book. Nice. Yeah. Of course, as I mentioned, the political situations and just the society situations really were reflected in the way and the tone of the night. I haven't really mentioned this much in terms of like, who has been the president of the Academy, but this is Gregory Peck's first year as the president yeah. of the Academy. That's so fun. And he took his role very, very seriously Yeah. Um, for several reasons, which I will get into as well. Of course, the president always makes a speech right at the opening. So they draw the curtain. And the first thing that's heard over the announcement is like, presenting the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, so-and-so. They come out, they do the introductory speech, and then they introduce the MC. Mm-hmm. So he gave the speech today. Um, and of course, a lot of it had to do with what was going on. So I just wanted to share a couple of quotes from that to set the tone. Um, he said, quote, society has always been reflected in its art. And one measure of Dr. King's influence on the society we live in is that of the five films nominated for Best Picture this year, two dealt with the subject of understanding between the races. It was his hard work and dedication that brought about increasing awareness of all men, that we must unite in compassion in order to survive. 
The lasting memorial that the motion picture community can build to Dr. King is to continue making films which celebrate the dignity of man, whatever his race or color or creed. So that was kind of the way that he introduced it. Uh, One of the other things that I appreciated about his introduction was, first of all, it was very, very professional and very inclusive of all the different facets of the academy so he talks about the society stuff that was going on he talks about dr martin luther king jr the next thing that he kind of praises is the advancements in technology um he says quote like our society the art of film is on the threshold of a great renaissance Mm -hmm. everywhere in the world new and meaningful and imaginative work is being done um he also applauded the creation of the american film institute Um, which was sponsored by the National Endowment for the Arts uh, to start preserving the heritage of film and sponsor young artists that may not otherwise find their way into film careers. Mm. So all of these things are just like great ways to kind of start the night off and talking about the many ways in which film is a part of the grander conversation. Mm -hmm. Finally, he thanks the rep from Price Waterhouse who has been around, (laughs) Bill Miller, Mm. um, and introduces uh, Bob Hope to the stage. So, of course, I, I've talked endlessly about Bob Hope and the way in which he runs his ship and the way that he does things. Some of my favorite jokes from his opening remarks, <laughs> just to kind of sum it up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, welcome to the Academy Awards, or as it's known in my house, Passover. Oh, my. <laughs> um, the other thing he made a lot of fun of, of course, outside of just poking fun at the delays and all of the things that go into that. Also, the normal things like the fact that all the stars are dressed up, blah, blah, blah. The fact that he hasn't won an Oscar, blah, blah, blah. He was really harping a lot on the strides that have been made forward in terms of showing sexy stuff on Uh screen. So lots and lots of jokes about that. One of them was, quote, a year ago, we introduced movies with dirty words. This year, we brought you the pictures to go with them. Today, Tom Jones would be up for a 4-H club award. Oh, my. This year, some of the pictures are so sexy, Price Waterhouse is handing out the answers in a plain brown envelope. Hmm. So just thought those are funny. The other thing I thought was funny was he was harping a lot on Dustin Hoffman being so young and being nominated and all that. He said, quote, I can't imagine awarding a kid like Dustin Hoffman. He started in a picture he can't get in to see. <laughs> so that's the tone of the humor for the evening. Ah, good. So moving right along, just to talk about some of the stuff that was going on, um, this is the last year that the Oscars were broadcast by uh, network radio in the U.S. Oh. Um, so the ABC network uh, had just split into four different separate services, and they carried the ceremony over the ABC Entertainment Network, but this was the last time that they did the radio broadcast. Oh, interesting. Specifically, the live radio broadcast in tandem with the live uh, like television broadcast. Mm-hmm. As we all know, last year was the last year that the categories for black and white films were separated. Uh So everything has been merged this year. Costumes, art direction, all these things. Just one single category. Nice. Oh, this is also, I thought this was interesting. This is the first award show since the 20th Academy Awards, so 20 years ago, in which they showed clips from the films that were nominated for Best Picture. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, that's been omitted, and I kind of talked about that way, way long ago. Yeah. Um, but they have decided to bring that back for the first time. Oh, good for them. Yeah, which, of course, is a tradition that has been on and off, but it's something we kind of know today as something that happens. Right. This year's nominations also marked the first time that three different films were nominated for the top five awards, which, as we know, are Best Picture, oh. Best Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. Wow. So the three films that accomplished that were Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. 
Nice. Yeah. This is also the only year in which two films received nominations in all four acting categories. Oh. At the same time. Yeah, right. Yeah. So those two films are Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Hmm. Also, (laughs) this becomes the seventh time that a film uh, won Best Director and Nothing Else, that film being The Graduate. Mm. Uh, And this is not going to happen again until the 94th Academy Awards. Oh, boy. Do you know what film that was? It was the one that just won. Yeah. The Power of the Dog. Jane Campion. She won that and the film didn't win anything else. So that is the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah. It's also the first time since the introduction of the Academy Award for Best Costume Design, which happened in 1948, that Edith Head did not receive a nomination. That is so amazing. I know. So altogether, at this point at least, she had received 30 nominations and seven wins over the past 18 years. Wow. Yeah. That's Just crazy. remarkable. Truly remarkable. If you ever want to learn more about her, there's an episode about her because yeah. she is just so dang fabulous. Um, so as I mentioned, Gregory Peck is the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And he wanted to make some major changes in terms of just what it meant to be a part of the organization. And so he made a huge all-out push in order to get all of the acting nominees present at the ceremony. He was actually very successful in this. Out of 20 acting nominations, he got 18 of them there. Wow. And the only two that didn't come were Catherine Hepburn, who was filming The Lion in Winter in France at the time. And Mm. she did do a video recording that was played from France. And uh, Spencer Tracy, who died Mm. before the ceremony. So he was not able to be there. Well, and it's interesting because it was very common not to be there. Yes. Yeah. Especially the actors. Yeah. At that time. But yeah, that is not common now. Definitely not. I think part of it has to do also with um, the end of the studio model because Mm -hmm. studio models were on such a strict schedule, you know, and their actors were due to do different things. They were expected. And so if your filming overlapped, you just didn't go. If you were in New York filming something, you weren't in LA for it. And it's also funny because even though this is sort of like publicity for movies, they did not really, especially at this time, they didn't really see that they were working together with television. Definitely not. Because it was on television, it also was like, we don't care really what happens on the television broadcast. We only care the outcome of the awards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. Whereas at like, I don't know when it started again being that way, like Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, it was definitely more like, it's big publicity for our movie. So everybody who's a part of the movie is going to be there. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that may have to do with movie theaters and the fact that at this point, you know, you saw the movie in the theater and that was kind of it. And, you know, once video releases became a thing, things changed. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I think that is interesting or important about this is up to this point, it's very familial. Oh, yeah. The ceremony. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of Bob Hope's intro is calling out people who are sitting there in the audience and everyone's laughing together. He name drops and everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. It feels like going to like your high school sports banquet or something Mm -hmm. where like it's all meant to be a celebration of what you and your friends have done Mm -hmm. um and so i think that is still a major part of the ceremony and that's probably why people felt less obligated to go because it wasn't such a huge to do in terms of their own careers it was more of like a getting together with people and honoring one another 
Um, yeah, right. So I feel like that plays into it as well. But uh, Mr. Gregory Peck is out here to change that. Mm-hmm. He says, everyone has to be present at the family picnic. Yeah. <laughs> also, funny thing, uh, this is the last year that any acting nomination came from a person who was born in the 1880s, which is uh, Edith Evans. Oh, my. We're getting towards the end of people who were born in the 19th century. Mm, wow. Yeah. Also fun this year, legendary film composer John Williams receives yeah. his first nomination for scoring Valley of the Dolls. Um, and he, of course, goes on to be nominated 50 more times. Yeah. And he wins five. That's another record holder here coming out for the first time. Yeah. Uh, additionally, a fun just little thing. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, is given an honorary award um, huh. this year. He's giving the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. Good for him. Uh, they gave a very nice speech about him and his contributions. And to all of this, he simply says, thank you very much. Indeed. And then walks off stage, which is one of the shortest thank yous in Academy history. Nice. Yeah. Finally, just wanted to point out that the film that won Best Picture, which we're going to talk about a lot more. I haven't even brought up basically anything about it, but we'll get to it Mm -hmm. uh, in the heat of the night. Uh, It's the first film in the detective genre to be honored as a Best Picture as voted by the Academy members. Yeah, Uh, nice. It's a very genre defining film. Yeah. I was even thinking that as I was watching it, how I was like, wow, this feels like a lot of the procedurals or just like detective movies that I like that are like more contemporary. And I haven't really seen anything like this up to this point. So mm-hmm. just very cool. Um, kind of a new age. And one of the things that was talked about a lot during the ceremony, but also just in retrospect from different people who talk about Academy Awards stuff is how this particular year was such a conglomeration for the films that were nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely indicative of the place that America was in at the time and where Hollywood was in terms of society because all of the films are just so different. Yeah, They're genre-busting films like The Graduate and In the Heat of the Night. They're bombastic and crazy and like aggressive films like Bonnie and Clyde as opposed to kooky films like Dr. Doolittle. I mean, how in what world are they both up for the exact same best picture award? Well, and to me, th- this is like the best, th- like this is a good indication of when the Academy is at its best. Sure. Because it is giving you the broad scope of American film artistry and yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, giving you a little bit of everything. And allowing a comedy slapstick comedy like dr doolittle to compete against guess who's coming to dinner yeah social drama stanley kramer social drama and in the heat of the night also intense social drama detective thriller yeah and bonnie and clyde which is like gangster shoot 'em up and (laughs) the graduate which is like Illicit love affairs. Yeah, somewhere between like a romance and a comedy and a social drama. So yeah, it's just, I love when I get to a year where I'm like, for the archives episode, I would talk about all of these. Yeah, totally. As opposed to other years, especially ones in the recent memory when <laughs> we were going like, through a little bit of a slump where it's like talk about? literally no other film but the best picture winner is worth discussing that's how like we end up with academy level. archives ship of fools <laughs> i mean yeah don't deny it <laughs> it was all right but like i'm saying yeah like for sure 
Well, and what I appreciate about specifically this year is that all of the films that get nominated are very multi-dimensional none of them are straight comedy straight drama straight anything they all are a little social they're all a little drama a little comedy some romance they all are breaking out of the genre and not even just the ones that are nominated for best picture i mean you also have you know uh wait until dark and thoroughly mm-hmm. modern millie and barefoot in the park mm-hmm. and like all these films that are just so the dirty dozen yeah cool hand luke right just very nuanced. Yeah, and it um 1967 is still considered one of the best years in American film history for hmm. films. Yeah. I mean, you know, 1939 is is always up there as of course kind of like yeah. the pinnacle of film goldenest golden year of Hollywood <laughs> history. Yeah, uh, but 67 is one of those as yeah. well. I mean, even I'm just refreshing myself on some of the other movies that came out this year. I mean, Camelot and Valley of the Dolls, and The Taming of the Shrew, and The Jungle Book, and mm-hmm. like, you know, all these just films that have actually stood the test of time a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of these films, because of that, are all considered like films that are still worth watching, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to get an opportunity to watch more of them this week. Yeah. I think that'll be really fun. So anyways, <laughs> I can move on here. So just to wrap some things up here, I wanted to go through our awards for this particular year. Um, As you know, Best Picture goes to In the Heat of the Night. Best Director goes to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Best Actor goes to Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night, which I... mm, I think it's an okay award. Yeah, it's a little strange that he won... I don't know why Sidney Poitier did not get nominated. I guess I could have done more research into that because I'm sure there were reasons. I mean, for this or for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Right. Yeah. The fact that they both came out the same year. And when I first realized that he didn't get nominated for this film, I thought it was because he was nominated for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And he didn't. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner got four acting nominations. So anyways, something screwy's going on. Yeah. It's just, it's political. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Best Actress goes to Katherine Hepburn for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Best Supporting Actor goes to George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke. Best Supporting Actress goes to Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde, which I also think is funny because both of them didn't get... They're not the leads. Like, they're the supporting actors, and they both have actors and actresses in them who are stronger. I don't know. It's just an interesting year. Yeah. Why didn't Paul Newman win for Cool Hand Luke or Faye Dunaway? For Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde. Okay, sorry. Carrying on. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen, or as we know it, original screenplay, goes to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And also, there are a lot of other great screenplays in this category, so congrats to all of the nominees. Best screenplay based on material from another medium, or as we know it, adapted screenplay, goes to In the Heat of the Night. Uh, Also up against some pretty fierce competition. Mm -hmm. Best foreign language film goes to Closely Watched Trains from Czechoslovakia which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Haven't really had a Czechoslovakian film competing yet. Nice. Best documentary feature goes to The Anderson Platoon. Best documentary short subject goes to The Redwoods. Best live action short subject goes to A Place to Stand. Best short subject cartoons or animated goes to The Box. Best original music score goes to Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah. And guess who wins? The one who is in the conducting pit. Elmer Bernstein. Yay. Congrats. That's fun. Yeah, exactly. What a fun way to win your award. 
Best original song score or adaption score goes to Camelot, which, as we've talked about, because there are so many musicals going on at the time, it's something that is adapted from another song or another musical. Mm-hmm. Best song goes to Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. And for the record, it was also competing against The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book, Walt Disney's final film that he personally worked on. So that's kind of sad. Yeah. Best costume design in all colors, whether it be black and white or color, uh-huh. <laughs> for the first time, goes to Camelot. Best art direction goes to Camelot. Best cinematography goes to Bonnie and Clyde. Best sound goes to In the Heat of the Night. Best sound effects goes to The Dirty Dozen. Best film editing goes to In the Heat of the Night. And best special visual effects, which is a very new award, as we talked about recently, mm-hmm. goes to Dr. Doolittle, oh. which makes a lot of sense. Nice. Uh, the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award this year goes to Academy President Gregory Peck. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to, as I mentioned, Alfred Hitchcock for all of his contributions to filmmaking. And there is an honorary Oscar given out this year. Uh, it was given to none other than Arthur Freed hmm. for distinguished service to the Academy and the production of six top-rated awards telecasts. Hmm. So congrats to him. Very deserved. As nice. you may recall from my past ceremony episodes about how he turned the whole ship around and figured out how they could have the spectacle, do it for the TV, not blunder it, <laughs> all those things that are essential to having a good telecast. Yes. So in the end, uh, there were several films that had many nominations. Um, Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner both had 10. Dr. Doolittle with nine nominations and The Graduate in the Heat of the Night and Thoroughly Modern Millie with seven. But at the end of the night, In the Heat of the Night won out with five wins, followed by Camelot with three, and then two wins for Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I just think it's so funny to talk about all this and like be so serious about Dr. Doolittle. Well, <laughs> that's a good person. I guess so. I have not seen that one. I've only seen the Eddie Murphy one. Rex Harrison. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then I will put it on my list because I do love some sexy Rexy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of what I uh, have to share. As I mentioned, you know, they are doing performances of the songs that were nominated for Best Song, so several performances throughout the night, including Angela Lansbury singing Thoroughly Modern Millie from Thoroughly Modern Millie, mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong singing The Bare Necessities, um, those kinds of things. And uh, all around, just a really lovely night. I mean, Julie Andrews presents Best Picture. That's a wonderful way to end the night. <laughs> and yeah, lots of really great films that made for an exciting ceremony, despite the very dark circumstances in which the evening uh, began and the kind of clouds that were surrounding it. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's what I have to share this episode. So let's take a little break here. And then when we get back, you can tell us about In the Heat of the Night. Yeah. And we're back. Got a lot to cover here. So oh, gosh. let's get into it. Time. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. Because we both really enjoyed this film, right? Yes. Yes. Time for some births. Oh, boy. We got to do a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. So, births. Irfan Khan, Trini Alvarado, Song Kang Ho, Laura Dern, Benicio Del Toro, Lauren Graham, Anna Gasteyer, Paul Giamatti, Nicole Kidman, Melora Hardin, 
Pamela Anderson, Will Farrell, Vin Diesel, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Matt LeBlanc, Jason Statham, Mira Sorvino, Leave Schreiber, Guy Pierce, Julia Roberts, Steve Zahn, Lisa Bonet, Mark Ruffalo, Jamie Foxx, Miranda Otto. What? <laughs> I, how is it that so many important people are born the same year? That's what happens. Wow. Crazy, crazy. Some debuts this year. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, Faye Dunaway, Dustin Hoffman, Anthony Hopkins. Wait, is Bonnie and Clyde Faye Dunaway's first film? No, she actually had two other films that came out the same year, but prior to Bonnie and Clyde's Whoa, release date. Busy girl. Um, but she also started on television. Okay. Um, she was on a couple episodes of TV before that as well. Gotcha. Dustin Hoffman, Anthony Hopkins, Angelica Houston, Harvey Keitel, Pat Morita, Richard Pryor, Rob Reiner, Martin Sheen, John Voight, Gene Wilder. Fred Willard, and Paul Winfield. That's like wow. one of the longest lists of debuts. That's crazy. Like. Yeah. Wow. And they're all such huge stars. Big names. Yeah. yeah. On to the deaths. Oh, boy. It's funny because you're very sad about the deaths always, but they've been dead, these people, for like 50 years. I don't care. <laughs> In my mind, they're alive because I'm living history through our Academy Awards. I've only been doing this for 40 years. Hmm. All right, All some right. deaths. Okay, lay it on me. Anne Sheridan, Jobina Ralston. Uh, we talked about her because she played the other woman in Wings. Franz Waxman, who was a composer. He was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won twice for Sunset Boulevard and A Place in the Sun. Nelson Eddy, Laverne Andrews of the Andrews Sisters. Claude Rains, nominated for Best Supporting Actor four times. Dorothy Parker, she was a screenwriter. Um, she was the screenwriter of the first iteration of A Star is Born. And she was the first to win, right? Uh, she first was nominated. Woman? No, she was uh, nominated twice for Academy Awards. Okay, gotcha. Spencer Tracy. Um, I just wanted to highlight a couple of his. Um, he was nominated for nine Academy Awards for Best Actor, um, holding the record tied with Laurence Olivier for the mm. most um acting nominations wow. he was the first of nine actors to win the award twice and is one of only two actors to receive it consecutively hmm. um, the other actor is tom hanks oh so he won two of those nominations for captains courageous and for boys town mm. we have frank butler screenwriter um three nominations and one win for going my way Jane Mansfield, Vivian Lee, <laughs> and of course we talked about her death uh, yeah. in the Ship of Fools episode. We've also talked about her life in yeah. many episodes. Um, of course, she was nominated and won twice for Gone with the Wind and A Streetcar Named Desire. Basil Rathbone, um, he was nominated twice for Best Supporting Actor. Jane Darwell, she won Best Supporting Actress for The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. As Ma Jode. Yeah. And Paul Mooney, nominated six times, and he won once for the story of Louis Pasteur. Of course, we talked about him in The Life of Emile Zola. Yes, yes, yes. So some other things, news from the film world in 1967. The first prototype of IMAX is debuted oh at Expo 67 in Montreal. Wow. 
Yeah, pretty amazing. We've talked about the craze, the big widescreen craze, mm-hmm. and the constantly making the Cinerama, film bigger. And yeah. So IMAX is the new company to work on it. A new production company, New Line Cinema, is formed uh-huh. as a film distribution company to bring foreign and art house films to college campuses. Oh, my. So that's how they started. Huh. Then 27-year-old founder Robert Shea operated the company out of his apartment in New York City for a couple years. Oh, okay. You can do anything. Yeah, very interesting. Of course, one of the most successful film distribution companies. As you mentioned, the American Film Institute was founded in L.A. in 1967 with a mission to, quote, preserve the legacy of America's film heritage. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. So AFI does a lot of random things. Um, <laughs> now it's mostly focused on film history. In the past couple decades, they've done a lot of like those lists of like the greatest movies of all time. And they work a lot with the Library of Congress in deciding what films should be preserved in the Library of Congress for, you know, future generations <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. They also give out awards, their yeah, own awards for and, things. Yeah. Sidney Poitier became the first black actor invited to press his hands and feet into the cement in the courtyard of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Wow. Um, it came in the same year as three of the biggest films in his career all <laughs> came out simultaneously. In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and To Sir With Love. Yeah, big year for him. Yeah, very big. Disney's 19th animated feature and the last one supervised by Disney himself is released, Mm. The Jungle Book. Um, It was made on a $4 million budget and it was their best-selling film in 10 years. Wow. The score was composed by George Bruns, though he used two previously recorded pieces from his score for Sleeping Beauty and the score from Snow White. Pretty interesting. That is interesting. Um, It also includes seven original songs by the Sherman Brothers. (laughs) Um, The only one that they did not write was the one that got nominated for best (laughs) song. (laughs) Isn't that just the The way? The Bare Necessities. (laughs) When I think of the Sherman Brothers, I think of Mary Poppins and the Jungle Book. Mm -hmm. At the Primetime Emmys, uh, this was the 20th primetime Emmys, they were almost exactly the same as the year prior. All Mm. the same shows were on, and they were all the same level of popularity. Mm. Mission Impossible won again. Get Smart won. Um, Bill Cosby won his second Emmy Award for the same character on I Spy. Um, Lucille Ball won another one. You know, you got your your regular players winning their regular awards. Um, And then we have the 22nd Tony Awards. And the best play for this year was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are <laughs> dead. And Hallelujah Baby wins best musical. What? I don't <laughs> even know what that is. Hallelujah Baby? Who's invo- Who's attached to that? Music by Jewel Stein, lyrics by Adolph Green and Betty Comden, and book by Arthur Lawrence. I don't know it. Yeah. It is a musical mostly like also about racial relations in America. So, okay. Well, I don't believe it has aged very well. <laughs> Whenever we do our Tony's podcast, we'll let you know. <laughs> also of note, Mike Nichols wins for best direction of a play. Yet another Tony huh. win for him. Yep. He's busy this year. Yep. 
So he wins a Tony and an Oscar. So on to In the Heat of the Night. First, a recap. A man is found to be murdered one evening in Sparta, Mississippi, and the local authorities seem unequipped to deal with it. They bring Virgil Tibbs into the station, a black man who was apprehended shortly after the murder. Police Chief Gillespie questions him and finds out he is actually a homicide detective from Philadelphia, passing through town after visiting his mother. Tibbs begins to help figure out the case despite Gillespie's wishes, and the widow of the murdered man requests he keeps working it, further complicating things for Gillespie. The two struggle to get along, Gillespie unsure how to behave around a proud black man and competent police officer. Tibbs eventually solves the case without the help of Gillespie, and the Sparta police force arrives just in time before Tibbs himself is murdered by a group of white supremacists trying to help cover up the murder. So that's that. Um, the film was made on a budget of only $2 million, um, which puts it in the like lowest quarter of Boy. like cheap best picture winners. Yeah. And it grossed only about $24 million. It was not that great of a selling mm-hmm. film. Um, we'll get into that. So the story of the film originated as a novel written by John Ball and published in 1965. It was Ball's first novel, and he wrote several more about the same character of Mr. Tibbs, who was a black police officer from Pasadena, California. Oh, I like him better from Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, Ball himself spent some time as a part-time reserve deputy in Los Angeles before becoming a novelist. When you look up stuff about him, they all say that he also was a trained martial artist, and he was a nudist. (laughs) So very fun at dinner parties. I hope so. (laughs) Um, The novel did not delve very deeply into racial relations between characters. But he Um, is a black detective and working white cases, essentially. Um, Sort of. I I mean, yes. But basically, no one in the the books are racist. And Ah. um, he is a very deferential character. Gotcha. Um, He is sort of like doesn't ever stand up to the few instances of racism that are in the books. And that's part of why the book was popular because it was very like lukewarm on social stuff. Yeah. Um, So Walter Mirisch purchased the rights for his production company. He had an overall deal, him and his brother uh, with United Artists. And of course we talked about them before they already produced the apartment and West side story, which both won best picture as yeah. well as the popular film Hawaii, which had been nominated for seven Oscars at the 39th Academy Awards. Hmm. He also produced Lilies of the Field. Oh, too. yeah. Okay. So he's got his hands in uh, the popular films at the time. But they're also the popular films that are dealing with heavy issues, yeah. which I think is interesting. Mirish had a lot of trouble getting it backed by United Artists at first because they were worried they were not going to be able to sell it in southern states. Well, yeah. Of course, with everything <laughs> going on, uh, meaning it would be very difficult for them to turn a profit. He agreed to cut the budget way down so that even if the film flopped, they were going to be less likely to take a loss on it. Gotcha. Which is why it was such a low budget film. Gotcha. He knew that the first piece of the puzzle would be Sidney Poitier. Yeah. The, like, you can't have the movie without him. Yeah. Very, very briefly, they tossed out the name Harry Belafonte. Sure. Yeah. And he probably could have played the part and been great. Yeah. But they wouldn't have been able to sell the film like they were able to without yeah. Poitier. Well, and as I talked about in the Academy Archives episode about Sidney Poitier, 
that was both his curse and his blessing mm-hmm. or whatever his gift was the fact that he was the acceptable black man mm-hmm. that people respected on the screen and uh, could play a role like this and was allowed to then stand up for himself and do some of the things that maybe they wouldn't have been okay with other black men doing on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so he r- reached out to TV writers first because he would only have to pay them the feature minimum um, <laughs> rather than paying like an established film writer like their higher asking fee. Um, so he brought in TV writer Robert Allen Arthur, who'd actually written characters for Poitier before during the 50s on the Philco Goodyear television playhouse show. Mirish did not like his adaptation, so he was sent away. (laughs) And then Poitier's agent actually suggested Sterling Siliphant, um, another TV writer who had written a couple of features, um, but he was one of the most sought-after TV writers at the time. Um, He was considered the next Patty Shayefsky who wrote Marty in between his other TV gigs. And of course, won won an Academy Award for. And the Palme (laughs) d'Or. His script was much more what both Mirish and Poitier were after and didn't shy away from the inherent racism like baked Mm. into the premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It was set in the Deep South in the adaptation and Tibbs was changed to be from Philadelphia giving him more of like a hardened resolve mm-hmm. and sort of like, you know, to be a proud black man from an inner city where he was used to standing up to people. Yeah. As opposed to a very put upon, I guess the character in the novel is like a very polite guy mm. from Pasadena <laughs> who just is like very deferential and like, I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't care about racism. Wow. Which well, is strange. Yeah. And that's just so hard to imagine because the character seems so defined by those simple life factors. Yes. And that is all due to the adaptation. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, they also wanted to make sure that they were matching the character to Poitier's on-screen image. Sure. Um, yeah. Like he would never play that other type of character. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which also allowed them to transform the other characters to fit the political moment Mm, and, like, just make it more realistic to fit, like, the truth of society. Yeah. Well, and I think what I really enjoyed about this film is not that it talks about racism perfectly because it definitely doesn't, but the fact that it feels so of the moment and you can see the effort that is being made towards just simply having the conversations and showing the things that feel really hard. And like when you asked me how I felt about the movie, what I thought of it, whatever, the only thing I could think about was how difficult a lot of this movie making process must have been for Sidney Poitier. Um, Well, and to be honest, he really enjoyed making the movie. And well, part of it is because, so in the two years from when the book was published, to when they started making the movie was the March on Selma, the Watts riots, riots in Newark, in Detroit. All of that Mm -hmm. happened in those two Mm, years. Yeah, So they're ready to go. Yeah. And just like reading his thoughts about this film, like he was really like jumping at the bit to do something like this. Yeah. Well, and at this point in his career, this is what he's doing now Mm -hmm. is he's doing these social dramas and Mm -hmm. ready to kind of shake off the, the image of the white man who's also a black man right 
So they wanted to film on location in Mississippi, um, but Poitier would not allow it. Um, The last time he was in the Deep South, he was with Harry Belafonte to help black voters register to vote. And they were attacked by the Ku Klux Klan. That's not very fun. So he said, I will not film in the South. (laughs) No, thank you. Yeah, don't give them your money. And also don't want to be distracted while you're trying to make a movie Mm -hmm. well and so everybody was very sensitive to this and they all were like okay great then we'll look for someplace else um so he and his agent worked with mirish and united artists and um norman jewison who is the director to all try to find good location for the film that's good um they ended up selecting a northern rural town that he would feel more comfortable in And luckily, it had the name of Sparta, Illinois, um, so that they could say that they were setting it in Sparta, Mississippi, and all of the art direction and art department didn't have to worry about changing any signs or anything. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, Norman Jewison was just like, there's so many funny quotes about this where he was just like, oh, we were driving around and there were water towers and like <laughs> Sparta was everywhere and we wouldn't have to make any of that up ourselves. <laughs> so that also helped them save some money too. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Also to keep costs down, Mirish and director Norm Jewison cast mostly lesser known or first time actors in most of the supporting roles. Mm. Um, Rod Steiger and Lee Grant were really the only other two well-known actors in the film at mm. the time. Sure. Poitier and Steiger received much less than their normal salary to keep the budget down as well, with Poitier receiving $200,000 for the role and Steiger receiving $100,000 for mm. his role. Wow. Lee Grant was also a bargain buy at the time because <laughs> for the previous 10 years before this, she was still being blacklisted from being in films. Oh, gosh. From like... Like the, the blacklist? blacklist? Oh yeah. my heavens. That's so unfair. Even though she was hugely popular on television at the time, and she even won some Emmys for her role on Peyton Place. Um, luckily, she was able to resurrect her film career after this role. So Yeah, jeez. Another really cool thing that I didn't know about this movie was that Mirish brought on cinematographer Haskell Wexler, um, who was still relatively new on the scene, so another cheap get. But he was right on the heels of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Ah. So he was the cinematographer for that film, um, proving that he had a good handle on like the sinister dramatic style that they were wanting for this one. Yeah. So before the film, he did extensive testing with Poitier because he wanted to make sure that Poitier was being lit correctly for color film. Um, up to this point, black actors had never been properly lit in American films to account for their darker skin color. Wow. And so, uh, thanks to Wexler and Poitier working on this film together, they figured out a bunch of techniques for darker-skinned actors and actresses. Wow. It's, like, just amazing to hear those things, but it's also just so sad because I desperately wish, like, and in this situation, it's Sidney Poitier, I just really wish that he was just allowed to be and just act and just to do his thing and didn't have to go through all of these huge strides, you know? Yeah. But thank God he was able to do it and put up with it and they were able to come up with the innovations to do it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, another uh, huge person to work on this film, of course, was Quincy Jones, who did all the music. Um, he composed, arranged, and conducted the entire score. Um, if it's you don't, a very good score. It's incredible. I, I mean, Quincy so Jones shocked. is amazing. If you don't know much about Quincy Jones, you should definitely watch um, the documentary Quincy, which is directed by his daughter, Rashida Jones, on Netflix. Very, very, very good. But he, of course, is responsible for so much amazing music that we have today yeah when i finished this i was like i wonder if i can find that on vinyl because that would be a great record to have yeah i bet you could um the title song composed by jones with lyrics by alan and marilyn bergman sung by ray charles made it to number 33 on the billboard hot 100 and number 21 on the r&b chart that year yeah pretty amazing so one of the biggest moments of the film was when poitier was able to slap a white man a white man yeah there's a lot of like back and forth about whether this was in the script or not poitier claims that it was his idea and that it wasn't in the original script Mm -hmm. but when you go back to the early drafts of the script it was in the script but that aside it was a very big moment for them to be able to shoot this scene because like they really had never had this kind of a moment in American cinema or on television where a black person was able to essentially like physically harm a white person and not be like thrown to the ground or something horrible happened to them. So yeah, worth mentioning. So in one year, Sidney Poitier gets kissed by a white woman and slaps a white man on screen. (laughs) Big year, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another big moment in the film is the line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Yes. Um, I did not realize that was from this movie until it was happening. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I think it's a little bit funny because people who are our age, I think our introduction to this line (laughs) is the spoof of it in The Lion King when Pumbaa says, they call me Mr. Pig. going to bring that up because that's what i was thinking well yes i mean that's what i feel like mr pig yeah i mean that's what people who are our age probably think about um and to be totally honest with you when it happens in this movie it's a very good moment yeah it was so impactful and i was very caught up in it and then after it happened i was like wait a second I think Pumbaa says that. Yeah. And then I had to like, yeah, figure it out. Well, and it was a very big moment for black audiences. Oh, yeah, I'm Um, sure. It was a line that frequently got like applause in the theater when black audiences were I mean, when I saw it, I was like, that's the moment that you hear the audience like latch on to this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bosley Crowther called this a film that has the look and sound of actuality and the pounding pulse of truth. Mm, Bosley, way to say it. I also just wanted to mention just a couple interesting quotes um, from Norm Jewison, who was the director. There's a really interesting article in The Hollywood Reporter where he basically, the whole article is basically a recording of him just kind of free talking about this Mm. film for the 50th anniversary of the film. Mm. One of the stories that he tells, he goes into because they told Poitier that they were not going to film below the Mason-Dixon line. Mm. That was his request then. Mm. 
But as they were going through, they could not find a cotton plantation to film on that was, there were no cotton plantations to film on north of the Mason-Dixon line. But they had to find one that was like full of cotton to film. Mm -hmm. Um, So the nearest one to the Mason-Dixon line was in Tennessee. Mm. And so he went to him and he was like, this is the thing. We're, you know, the shooting is going really well. We're going to have to shoot in Tennessee at this plantation. Will that be okay with you? We will try to, you know, we'll load everything in the schedule so that we only have to shoot for like as few days as possible. We'll just go, we'll shoot it and we'll get out of there. Um, And he was very clear to say like, you know, we're all on your side. There's lots of big guys, a part of the crew. Security. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. And so they went and the town that they had to stay in, the main hotel did not allow black people to stay at it. So they had to stay at the Holiday Inn, which I guess the Holiday Inn at the time was accepting of all people. So that's nice. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) For the Holiday Inn. So when they were there, word got around that Sidney Poitier was going to be there. And so a bunch of crazy people showed up and tried to picket it. And they were trying to say that like there were women staying in the hotel and how dare you allow a black man to stay there when women are also there. And uh, the director, Norm Jewison, he gathered all the biggest grips and electricians and they put a couple outside of Sidney's room. And he went to Sydney and knocked on the door and he was like, I just want you to know that this is happening outside, but we're taking care of it. So you don't need to think about it. Mm. And Poitier replied saying, he was like, don't worry. I've got a gun under my pillow. If this door opens up, the first person who I see is going to get it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And then Norm Jewison took all of the biggest guys on the crew and they went down and then they like dispersed them from the hotel uh well yeah it's just awful it's hard it's so frustrating how impossible things were yeah um another interesting little moment from this article (laughs) he said quote we won the best picture oscar but i didn't win best director i must say i was disappointed I can't believe it's been 50 years. It's amazing how people are telling me, you know that the film plays well today, just as well as it did then. But I say, that's sad. To still Mm -hmm. have that kind of racial confrontation in America, that's sad. And I was thinking that, like, I was really surprised that it felt as modern as it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also thought it was very sad that they were explaining things and talking about situations. And I was like, huh, those are things that were still dealing with today trying to, yeah. yeah um the last piece of this film that i'll mention briefly um is that the crux of the end of the film is around Ooh, abortion yes. yes i okay when the film finished i was like zach how much research have you done yet and he was like not really any yet i was like i need to know what is going on because they explicitly say the word abortion and i did not think that was allowed okay so i mentioned this um Way back, because in 1956, the production code decided to allow the use of narcotics and abortion, quote, within the limits of good taste. Right. So they have to talk about it like it's a negative thing or not be grotesque about it. Right. 
and so there have been a couple instances up to this point, even before the code allowed it, there were some pre-code films that discussed abortion, actually, huh. um, in the early 30s okay. and 20s, like a talkie or two in the t- late <laughs> 20s. And then there were a couple mentions of it in some foreign films or, you know, hinting at what they were saying, like talking about or like without talking using the word it. abortion. Yeah. yeah. And still up to this day, it's very strange to research like abortion in pop culture. Because even up to this day, the people who get abortions are most often like characters who are not usually going to be a mother anyways. Like, what do you mean? So they're usually a rich person who has a lot of success who, like, in normal times, you would be like, oh, of course, they would be the one to get an abortion. Hmm. You know what I mean? Not the typical, like it's st- very stereotypical. Okay. The way, not like modeling off of true society. Gotcha. Um, and so this instance is one of the few instances of characters of low status. Yeah, a normal girl in a desperate situation who can't have a baby. Right. And part of that, I think in this moment, helps them get away with it because it's adding to looking at the situation as a lowly situation. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a, a low-class person in a, you know, a rundown town. Mm-hmm. And the abortion doctor is a black woman. Yes. So that is the other thing, is that during this time, abortion is being portrayed as, since it is illegal, it is easier to put it in a film as, like, a seedy situation yeah Yeah. because it is illegal even though there are doctors performing it illegally you know in a way that that is safe gotcha yeah in a doctor's office yeah but this becomes the most palatable way for them to portray the situation then yeah i just think it's interesting that it's even a, a subject or a plot point in this film well and you have to think roe versus wade is about to happen i guess that is true in like only five years from this moment in of this movie. And so the conversation has definitely already been growing big Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the public in the way to in five years from this point for it to pass in the Supreme court. So it's already becoming a huge talking point of conversation. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very shocking section of the film to me. Well, and especially (laughs) since no other, like best picture or best picture n- like near best picture film has had anything like that definitely not well and that it's just so explicit and so like normalized in a way yeah. like it doesn't feel like a crazy thing that's happening it just feels like the next step of the mystery mm-hmm. also sorry for ruining the mystery a little bit to... Ah, the movie's been out for over 50 years <laughs> isn't it funny to think though we went from the sound of music to a man for all seasons to this movie? Yeah. It just feels like such a big jump. Well, and that is what this next era is. Yeah. I mean, it's very dark, very gruesome. The code is going away. There's a lot of violence. There's more language. There's more sexuality. Mm-hmm. D- and exploration of different types of sexuality. And yeah. With them. I mean, even just like The Graduate is a good example of that. How like talking about sexuality in a film is already starting to shift. Right. 
And with that, <laughs> we come to the end of the show. And at the end of the show, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this episode, this film, these people that we've talked about. I will start. I will thank the Academy for Gregory Peck. Oh, yeah. A leader among leaders. Yeah, he's he's an artist. Yeah. And it's nice to see somebody who really takes the position of, like, being in charge of the Academy, like, really seriously. Yeah. And he's a person, and we've talked about him before. He was, like, very involved in lots of things beyond mm-hmm. being an artist. A lot of, like, you know, social movements and yeah. really cared about people and cared about his friends and cared about what was happening in the country. Yeah. And so it makes sense that he would also accept a position like this mm-hmm. and think he could do something with that. Yeah. And and do something. And with live it. up to it. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy for um conductor Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Congrats to him. It's very cute. He's very young. I didn't realize, like, I mean, maybe he's not actually that young because I'm not sure. But in the videos of him during the ceremony, he looks like a kid. He looks so young. And to be at the Oscars and win your first Oscar is awesome. Yeah. He was working it and then they call him right up. I love that. Yeah, that is fun. Congrats to him. I would like to thank the Academy for the times. They are a changing. (laughs) Yeah, thank God. <laughs> I always like when we get into a new era. Like you yeah. just can like sense it that like everything is changing. The art is changing, society is changing, the like group of core actors in mm-hmm. Hollywood is all changing. Um there's new directors that are bursting onto the scene. There's new producers who have all these cool ideas about what a movie could be. There's new you know, organizations and new companies bursting up. And yeah, yeah it's really, really, it's always fun to yeah. like get into a new era of Hollywood. Yeah, it feels like the tide's coming back in, you know. And it's really exciting too to just see how different things are, but that they're still so good and exciting. Because mm-hmm. like, I love mu- the golden age of musicals. I love that era. And I loved all of the early, like late 30 stuff, glamours, Hollywood, all that stuff. I mean, every ebb and flow has been so fun for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to get into this and you can just feel it coming. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy once again for like the thousandth time for the incredible stamina and work of Sidney Poitier, who is just out there doing it, mm-hmm. taking the brunt of it, setting the boundaries, making the innovations, pushing the boundaries. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. And along with that, I also would like to give an honorary award. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> to uh, the Holiday Inn. Thanks for not being super racist. Oh, that's good. <laughs> just a little side one. It doesn't count as a competitive award, but uh. a little... uh little yes. honorary award to the Holiday Inn. Uh, I will book a stay there next time, I guess. Huh. And with that, we leave you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And please join us again soon when we bring you another Academy Archives. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. 
The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.